try and imagine that you were Jonah's wife and that your husband had been missing for three solid days. No news. Finally, on the third day, he shows up at your front door looking rather dizzy, scruffy, and everything else. And of course you're upset. Where, where have you been? And he says, I was swallowed by a fish. Yeah, I know what you say. Come on, man, tell me another one. But as I hope to show you today, and as I hope to show you tomorrow, a lot of individuals have had to share stories that are parallel to something of Jonah's experience. Because disobeying God can be easy, but it can also be costly. And that's the title of my sermon. So let's begin with the very last verse. Verse 17 where we are told, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Before we come back to that verse, let's quickly remember the journey that we have been in or on. First of all, we have uh, been looking at the minor prophets one after the other. We have been galloping along, admittedly. So we, we have seen that we have about four of them that were prior to the taking of the whole of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel into captivity. We've got about four of them that are related to life within captivity or thereabouts. And then we've got the last four that are after captivity, but the people of Israel, in a sense, were still under a foreign army. So they were still colonized. They were not yet free. And so it wasn't quite tying in with the promises that had been gloriously made by previous prophets concerning the future of Israel. Well, the period that we are in is the first part. So we have seen, first of all, Hosea. We have seen Joel. We have seen Amos. And uh, last time we were looking at Obadiah. And basically in each of them, the message was consistent. And it was a message of warning. Continuing sin punishment will come. And it was a message of God's love that God does not want to come upon you in punishment. He doesn't want to come upon you in chastisement and discipline. God does not want that. But it is dependent on your repentance. So repent. Turn away, especially from idolatry where you now have God on one hand, and then you've got your own little gods on the other. God, your God, is a jealous God. He must remain the only one. That's, that's basically the message that has been 
consistent in all these. And again, we have mentioned the fact that, yes, we, we, it may be true that Israel was being warned and they didn't listen, but it's, it's the same message across history that keeps coming to the church, not to the nations, because they're already dead in sin, but especially to the church because we are the people of God. We are the ones who should, who should have no shrines whatsoever except the altar of God himself. But we are the very ones who have a tendency to turn money into a God, to turn popularity into a God, to turn recreation into a God, to turn so many other things into gods so that the real God of heaven becomes secondary. And what we really are chasing after is everything else other than God. And the warning is that disaster is coming. It comes upon the church that goes that way. It comes upon the individuals that stubbornly continue that way. And the reason why God comes in chastisement is because he does not want us to be punished with the rest of the world. And so he deals with us in this life to bring us back to a healthy walk with him that we might glorify him. So that's the gist of what we have dealt with thus far. And in Obadiah, the main issue was a warning to um, the people, uh, the descendants of Esau and the Edomites. And they were being warned that God was coming in judgment against them because of the attitude or the grudge that they were having towards God's people. And so we saw two sides to it. First of all, it was a warning to us in the New Testament not to become enemies of God's people. Because when we do, we are going to be the losers in the end. But also, the other way around is that if we are the people of God and others are sworn enemies of us, we shouldn't bother to go into fights with them. No, God will fight for us. As we ended last Sunday evening, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust. And obey. That was the message of Obadiah. Well, today we begin the book of Jonah. And uh, as I have already begun to speak, it is um, a book that um, begins on a rather awkward footing. As I said, by the time we're getting into chapter 2, and uh, the very end of it, where we read, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out, up, out upon the dry land. I was saying, imagine your husband shows up missing and then says that I was swallowed by a fish. It wasn't something that was happening every week. It wasn't something that uh, the people in Jonah's day would have said, Oh, yes! Even my grandfather was swallowed up by a fish 50 years ago. 
It, it was completely unique. And because of that, some people think it is an allegory. It is not a true story, they think. Because, come on, how can a fish swallow a human being? Well, the simple answer is that when Jesus was speaking about the days of Noah, rather the days of Jonah, and him being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, he didn't say, you remember that story that so-and-so told. He spoke of it as real history. And therefore, we too must begin there. There are one or two differences between uh, Jonah and the books that have preceded. First of all, it is the fact that this book is written in as a narrative. You will notice it is largely a story. Fine, we have Jonah chapter 2, which is partly in poetic form, and it was the prayer of Jonah that he made in the belly of the fish that has been put into poetic form. However, the rest of the book is but a narrative, which is different from the previous ones, because you will notice that the previous ones were largely poetic. They were written in verse. If you uh, go back to um, Hosea, you will remember that most of Hosea was in verse. You had chapter 1 that was in narrative form or prose and a little bit of chapter 2 and just the whole of chapter 3 which was the shortest of the entire book. It only had five verses that was in the form of verse. But the rest of it, rather the form of prose or narrative, the rest of it was in poetic form. By the time we come to uh, Joel, it's just uh, poetry after poetry. Yes, a little bit of it was in um, verse, rather prose or narrative, but most of it was uh, poetic. Amos, that we've already looked at exactly the same. I'm looking at them right now. And apart from the places where he was saying that this is what the Lord showed me, this is what the Lord showed me, this is what the Lord showed me. Apart from that little section, it was poetic. Obadiah was poetic. But here we are. We come to Jonah and we have a narrative. We have a story that is being put before us. And again... Let's take it that it is real history. The other reason why we can speak of it being real history, as I hope to show you in a few minutes, Jonah uh, is spoken about elsewhere in Second Kings. And chapter 14 will go there in a few minutes. But the second difference is that um, when you go to the other narratives, in uh, Hosea and, and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, uh, well, Obadiah didn't even have any, it was in the first person, largely. It, it was, this is what the Lord showed me. I saw this, and then this is what happened, and so on. 
whereas Jonah is written in the third person. In other words, it's me telling you the second person about a third person, Jonah. So it's a story about someone else and you are listening to me. So the question comes in then, who is it then who wrote the book? Well, we're not told who it is, but there is no reason for us to doubt that it was Jonah himself. And it has always been understood that way across history. Jonah was a contemporary of Hosea and Amos. They lived more or less at about the same period. So since we have listened to Hosea, we have also listened to Amos, you can understand that it was in that period when the prophets were warning Israel and at the same time they were denouncing the nations that were attacking Israel. That's when he also lived. Let me quickly take you to um, 2 Kings and chapter 14 where he is actually mentioned under the rule of Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second, who was ruling in Israel. My interest is really in verse 25, but we will begin from verse 23. So, on the side of Judah, there was another king. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Okay, so that's on Judah's side. The two tribes of Israel that we can speak about as um, the, the other part, the kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. So that's him now there under whom Jonah is mentioned. And he reigned 41 years. But look at his lifestyle, and that explains why judgment was due. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, that is, Jeroboam the first. Okay, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the sea of the Arabah. According to the word of the Lord, here it is now, we're in verse 35, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hepha. So that's, if you go to Jonah and chapter 1, Look at the way it begins. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This is not an allegory. This is real history about a man who lived at a time when Israel was ripe. Ripe for the judgment of God. And... Uh, 
um, Jonah was an individual who knew that God was already revealing to the prophets that Assyria was going to come to punish the people of Israel. Babylon was going to come to punish the people of Judah. Jonah knew. And before I speak about what he did when God gave him this command, allow me to quickly say that the book of, Ju uh, the book of Jonah, therefore, as we shall see, first of all, speaks of disobedience. Speaks of the disobedience of the people of Israel and the disobedience of the prophet of Israel, and that is Jonah himself. But it also speaks about revival. And that's one of the reasons why it is not a book that leaves you depressed. There's a book that says there is hope. First of all, this man who is reporting that to his wife that he just spent three days in the belly of a fish, the point is this, he's not in the fish. He's out of that fish. Our God is a God of second chance. So that in itself is a blessed story. But it's also about the revival of a nation that at one time was at enmity with God and with God's people. And listening to the preaching of a prophet, a heathen nation repents, wholesale repentance. The very thing, as we discovered to our shock, that Jonah did not want. Well, brethren, after that rather lengthy um, introduction, I hope that gives you a sense of what we're dealing with here. Let's go into the life of Jonah. And first of all, what we come across is the call that God brought on his life and his response, which was a running away. A running away. So let's read the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, far rather away from the presence of the Lord. That's an amazing account there because we, we don't hear that about the prophets of God. I mean, tell me another prophet who received God's word and was ambivalent. Now, we have individuals like Moses 
who were hesitant to go, but they had dealings with God immediately. And in the process, God convinced them and they went. But you, you don't have any other prophet that God then speaks to that go this way and the moment God blinks once, the guy has disappeared the other way. You don't have that. But here you are with Jonah. How do we apply this story to ourselves? Well, first of all, just quickly, the point here that made God want the message to go out to Nineveh, we are told their evil has come up before me. Go and call out against it. In other words, go and tell these people exactly the kind of message we have been giving to Israel. Repent or perish. Repent or suffer. Go and tell them because their sin is reaching the ceiling. Jonah decides I'm not going there. At first thought, we think that it might be because he's afraid these people won't listen to him or they might kill him. But as we shall go on to learn later, it is because he wanted them to actually be punished so that they do not end up being the ones to cause the Israelites to suffer. So in, in one sense, his his cultural attachment, his filial attachment, the, the relationship, the bonding that he had with the, the people of God, the Israelites, is what kept him back. But also, it's, it's one's ego. Who wants to belong to a people who mean so much to you and then they get destroyed. Imagine what life is going to be like after that. So there's a lot in, in Jonah's own thinking that finally made him think, you know what, I'm not staying here. I'm, I'm not going to be part of this. I would rather these people suffer. And consequently, he went a different way. How are we to apply this to ourselves? Well, I think, first of all, the application is obvious to those who are preachers, those who are called to the preaching ministry, who, because of all kinds of cultural things, issues, perceptions that they themselves have of life and so forth, end up refusing, at least initially, to respond to God's call on their lives. And remember where I began this, this sermon, I talked about the Kafiwa situation where we've come from and seeing uh, one of our young men who has given up his, his job in the computer world in order to, to go and become a pastor. It's obvious. Nobody does that just whistling. Definitely not his wife, just whistling. 
there's a wrestling there with reality. And there are many individuals that God has to make a fish to swallow them first before they finally yield. The many individuals. And often it's because of what I was preaching about this morning there. It's, it's a money issue. It's a money issue that if, if we take on this route, we will be poor. How will our children be educated? So, no, no, no. Let's jump on a ship to Tarshish. Let's go the opposite way. But we can also apply it to, to the rest of us. Because the stewardship of grace that we're learning about last Sunday morning that was on the Apostle Paul, you remember I said that it's not just for those of us who can speak about a sense of call to the preaching ministry. Perhaps let's just quickly deal with that and then we'll come back to Jonah. Let's begin with Ephesians and chapter 3 where we began. Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul, speaking about himself, said in Ephesians and chapter 3, verse 2, I begin with verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he breaks off his thought, and says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So Paul recognized that there was a, a responsibility. Remember he said that the word stewardship has to do with a person who's in charge of a house while the owners of the house are away. And in this particular case, I'm in charge of this dispensation of God's grace. The means by which he seeks to bring sinners to himself. He says, this, I'm a steward of this grace. And we mentioned how this was opened up through the, the message that was given to apostles and prophets that was not given to anybody else. And therefore it was the message they needed to proclaim. But I made the point that it's not just preachers, but all of us who are Christians are given some gift or gifts that we should employ in, because we are also stewarding the grace of God. So turn with me to Romans and chapter 12. Now, all of you will remember that we were in Romans um, a few years ago. Chapter 12 and verse, um, verse 3. <clears throat> verse 3. For by the grace given me, that's Paul, we, we understand what he means because we've just seen it in Ephesians chapter 3. So by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one of another. Now listen to this. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So it's not just Paul who has been given this grace and is now saying to everybody, don't be proud but take your position that God has given you in the body, but he's saying even to you whom I'm speaking to, you too have gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to you. So in one sense, we all steward God's grace. We all steward this through the gifts that God has given to us. So as we study Jonah, let us not just think of the prophet in the Old Testament, let us not just think of individuals that God might be calling to, to pastoral ministry, to, to the work of missionary, to go to Shangombo, to go and reach out people there. Let's think about ourselves as well, if we are Christians. Because... God is dealing with us. Look at the way he puts it here. If prophecy, in proportion to your faith, well, that fits in a little bit into um, the prophet there, but if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads, with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So that's my only plea as we jump into Jonah. That we shouldn't find ourselves watching a movie. And we're feeling sorry for the main actor that is now about to spend three days in the belly of a fish. Let us say to ourselves, what is God saying to me? with respect to the stewardship of grace that he has given to me. And again, the point I want to mention as we get back to Jonah is all of us can be at that position where we are saying, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. In other words, if I could give one or two examples, it's where you, you say to yourself, well, look, you know, nobody seems to be giving themselves to this work, so why should I? So you are finding excuses based on everybody when really the Lord seems to have peculiarly gifted you that you, in your place, might do your work. So the issue here is how are you responding to God dealing with you in the gift or gifts he has given you? Well, Jonah ran away. 
But as he ran away, which is a big possibility for anybody of us, the Lord goes chasing after him. Remember, disobeying God can be easy. Other people may not even know that you are living in disobedience, but you, you know. You, you know, because you've hardened your heart. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, Jonah knew more than the captain knew. Whereas the captain was saying, perhaps, Jonah knew that there's no perhaps here. It's me who needs to pray so that this storm, this storm can cease and I head back. It's me to do it. But did he do so? No. The stubbornness continued. It's amazing how we Christians can be. That when God is dealing with you, again, according to the stewardship of grace that he has given you, and you know it, even sermons can come from the pulpit, such as this sermon, which everybody else is just saying, perhaps, perhaps. But you, where you are, in your heart, you know that this is not perhaps. The sermon on Jonah chapter 1 is for me. But what do you do? Do you say, God, I own up? Let me go into action over this. I've been stubborn long enough. I was going the wrong way. I was digging in my heels. No. Stubbornness continues. Because you've got an idol of your own making, which is what it was with Jonah. It was really an idol. He had idolized nationhood. Idolized it so that it was now bigger than God. Well, let's go on. And they said to one another, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Jonah is there. There's no need for them to cast lots. But look at this. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? 
And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They, they are bewildered. Now, God used this in his sovereignty to make him stand out. It is not necessarily that in every situation we should ex be expecting people to, uh, to play lots. But clearly, the point is that the, the, the person who is in stubbornness and sin, God finds a way to bring him out of, into the open. And this is his answer. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I'll go on reading because I want us to quickly get to the fact that disobedience is not just costly to you, the person. It becomes costly to the people around you as well. The people around you. And that's what we see here, verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and help me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. You can understand, they are reluctant. You know, us destroying you. Let's try another way. Let, let, let's, let's put all our energy together to roll this ship back to shore because we love you. We care for you. We don't want to see this happen to you. But we are told they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. And basically the cry was, Lord, what we are about to do, don't blame us. We didn't want to do it. But we had no choice. If we did not get rid of this guy that he dies, we were all going to die. So it's better one dies on behalf of all. So on the judgment day, Lord, when it comes up, please don't hold it against us. Let's read that. Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, that is Yahweh, to the God of uh, the Israelites. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and held him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and made vows. Two things happened at the end of this story, and with that I need to quickly wrap up for us to go into the Lord's Supper. The first is this, that even in Jonah's disobedience, God manifested himself in such a way that the people around Jonah began to fear the God of heaven. We cannot say that they became believers, but one thing they realized, that this God of Jonah is a real God. Look at what has happened. Look at what has happened. He's a real God. May I also put it like that to us? That even in your disobedience, God will glorify himself. The only difference is you don't get the reward. You don't. But there's no way to frustrate God. There's no way. Because in the very details of your disobedience, he will still show something of his honor and his glory. But lastly, it is the manifestation of his love. I know when Jonah, coming back to my story, shows up before his wife, saying I'd been swallowed by a fish. The thinking is, oh, too bad. But really, the answer ought to be praise the Lord. Because if the fish had not swallowed Jonah, he would have drowned and that would have been it. So let's look at that verse with changed eyes now. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He was, as it were, shut up with God, but in such a way that he was safe. It was in the midst of that three days and three nights that Jonah was brought to the end of himself, to the end of his idolatry, to the end of his own plans. And as we shall see next week, he cries out to God. Cries out to God. Often God can do that to us. That our idols go up in flames. Utterly. But instead of us being destroyed with it, the Lord preserves us. And in the wrestling of our souls with this reality, he turns us around and hope begins. In one sense, that's basically what happened with our Savior. Our Lord did not do what Jonah did. He didn't run. But remember that he was at that point. Father, 
If it be thy will, let this cup pass away from If there is any other way to avoid this, Father, let it happen. The difference is that with Jesus, your will must be done. He did not have any idols. It was your will. But then, he went in for three days and three nights. What happened? Victory came out of there. Our salvation comes out of there. And as Jesus later on comes to this account and says, just as it was with Jonah, so shall it be with the Son of Man. God has a way of bringing his eternal love to shine afresh in the midst of the darkest hour. And that's what happens when God gives somebody a second chance. We'll come to see that next week. There's a freshness. There's a new zeal. There, there is a wrestling with God that, that gives birth to a new man utterly. But it is this, that there was a season when God locked him in. When God locked her in as he began to have dealings with that soul. And sometimes it can be on the bed of illness. You've been busy, this and that and so on, and God has been saying to you, Iwe, here. But mm -mm, you've got all these agendas, all these agendas. Finally, God says, no problem. Mm, he touches you. And you are down, you are in bed. You thought it was one day, and just goes on and on and on and on. And while you are on that back, everybody else is continuing their life. You are looking right into heaven. And you are saying, God, I know. I know what this is all about. I know. I'm going to come out of this bed a new man. But for now, I'm shut in with you. As we shall see next week, God have mercy.